Well, good morning, Real Life Church. It's what a privilege it is to come and speak to you today. Um, it's actually been about 18 months since the last time I preached at my last church. And we've only been here, this, our family, for, well, since last July, so less than a year now. So I'm conscious there'll be a number of you who maybe don't know me very well. In fact, there are some visitors here today, so you won't know me very well. So I'll just uh, give a bit of an introduction about who I am. So my name's Mike, i said that already. I'm uh, married to Sarah. She's just taken our kids out to the kids' work. We've got two kids, Sophie, who's just over two years old, and then Joy, who's six, seven months old. Um, now, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I was brought up in a non-Christian home, non-Christian family, and I had no exposure to church. And so I, I grew up, I went to school, I went to university, um, and it wasn't really until I got there to university that I really met any real Christians who had a real passion for God. And that's where I first met Sarah. Um, and what happened was we, we started dating. I wasn't a Christian at the time, uh, but she eventually convinced me, uh, in fact, one of her friends convinced me to come along to church. And I thought, well, I'll go, I can say I've been, and they can just drop the subject. So I went along, but what I didn't know is that it was actually a full-on gospel meeting. It was, in, it was designed for people who didn't know Jesus. And there was a guy called Adrian Holloway, who some of you may have heard of. He's, he's a, an evangelist within New Frontiers. He'd been invited in to speak. And he just preached the gospel and unpacked Jesus and what he's done. And in that meeting, God came and just completely turned me around. I was saved in that one meeting. I'd never been to church before, never really had any exposure to Christians before, but God came and impacted my life. And I was saved. I didn't fully understand what had happened to me at that time, but I knew God was speaking to me, and the way I was thinking was completely transformed. So that's where I came from, that's how I became a Christian. And so then uh, Sarah and I continued, we were at university, uh, we got married after we graduated, we moved to a place called Biggleswade, which is in Bedfordshire. Um, we really moved there because of our jobs, we'd got two jobs, I was up in Peterborough, Sarah was just south in Hertfordshire. And just looking at a map, Biggleswade was the only place we could really find that we could you know, live in the same house. Because I, you know, we wanted to live together, we were going to be married, so that's where we ended up. Um, but God had plans in doing that. We ended up, for a while, just going back to our church in Cambridge. Um, but eventually, you know, we, we weren't comfortable with that. That was just to kind of help with the transition into married life. So we started looking for a local church, and we found out that one, a New Frontiers church just up the road in a place called St. Neers, was thinking about planting into Biggleswade. So we went along. And in fact, the first people we met were Stuart and Melanie. They were there at the time. Um, and so we ended up being in that church for about two years before they eventually planted into Biggleswade. But we, so we went when the church was planted there and we became part of the church plant. So we had been there for basically the entire time until we moved here. Um, so we moved here in July last year. About a year before that was when God started speaking to us about it. And it was quite a strange experience because what happened was we had thought we were going to be in Biggleswade for good. We thought, you know, we're going to lay down our roots. We bought a house. We were starting a family. And we thought that's where we're going to be. But then it was quite strange how God just started loosening our roots in the place. And we got to a point where we just felt like, you know, we, maybe we're not supposed to be here for good. We didn't feel that connected in the community anymore. And so one night we prayed and we said, God, we think we're supposed to be here for good. But if you want us to go somewhere else, just tell us and we'll go. And the very next day, God started speaking to us about coming here to real life. Um, Sarah received a, a text message from Melanie just saying, why don't you guys just come and visit for a weekend and just come say hi. <laughs> um, but also at the same time, that very same day, I didn't know this had happened with Sarah, but I was at, at work in a meeting and we saw there was a map of the UK on the wall. For whatever reason, we were looking at the different sites we had in the country. And all I could see on this map was Birmingham and that area. And God just started speaking to me about Birmingham, putting it on my heart and wanted to come and be here. So I got home and told that to Sarah, and she mentioned, well, hang on, Melanie's just sent me this text. And so, you know, we put two and two together and started to really investigate what God was saying. And it took a few months, but by about the November of that year, we'd, we came here on a Sunday, 
Um, and there are a number of, of prophetic words that were shared, and a few things that Stuart said at the end, just to wrap up the meeting, really spoke to us. And we stood up, we looked each other in the eye after that meeting, and just said, we've got to be here. Um, and so that was the point we decided. So we got back home, we started making the preparations to move, got the house on the market in the new year. Uh, we couldn't get out of the mortgage deal we were in until the 3rd of July, so we moved on the 4th of July and we got here. So we've been here ever since. So that's me, that's who I am. So today we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 5. We're continuing the series of the Gospel of John. Last week, Stuart preached on the first 15 verses from that chapter. Um, and I've got the rest of the chapters, verses 16 through to 47. So that's 32 verses. And almost all of it is Jesus speaking. There's, there's a lot of meat in here. It's very deep. And I should probably warn you, the last time I preached was on one verse. That took me 45 minutes. So, you know, at that rate, by my reckoning, we're going to be here till about this time tomorrow. So there's tea and coffee out back. Help yourself to food. You, you know, you're going to be in there for the long haul. I will try and do it a bit quicker than that, obviously. So I'll just, uh, I'll just read the passage. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go into and unpack some of the things that are going on in there. So John chapter 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's just pray. Lord God, I want to ask that your word would be exalted this morning. In our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds. Your word is God breathed. Your word brings life. Your word has authority over us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit to that authority. Help me to preach your word faithfully, Lord. Holy Spirit, speak through me. God, I ask that you would make Christ magnificent in our eyes this morning. That we would understand the mighty power of his voice in raising people from the dead. But may there also be a deep sense of security that he has come to die for us. That he has come to save us. Justify us, make us his own forever. So come, Lord, save those who don't yet believe. Lord, come and strengthen the faith of those who do so that your son will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me just set the scene. As I said, Stuart preached last week on the first 15 verses of this chapter, and they're they're linked. There's a lead-in to what I've been uh, just reading out from verses 16 onwards. So what we saw is that Jesus encountered a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, and he healed him, and he told him to take up his mat and walk. And then what happened is that the Jewish leaders, they saw this man carrying his mat, and it was the Sabbath. And according to their man-made laws about the Sabbath, they said, you're breaking the Sabbath, you mustn't carry your mat. And they started having a go at this guy. And so what did he do? He started to try and pass the blame onto Jesus. He said, hang on, this guy who healed me told me to carry my mat. But at the time, he didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't know his name. He wasn't sure who it was who'd healed him. So he was trying to pass the blame, but he, couldn't, he didn't know who to pass it to. Uh, but later on, Jesus comes to this man in the temple and he says, look, you've been healed, but stop sinning. Otherwise, something worse is going to happen to you. So what does the guy do? Does he stop sinning? Does he turn his life around? No, he runs off to the Jewish leaders and he squeals on Jesus. He said, it was him, it was Jesus. I know his name now. That's the guy who healed me. That's the guy who told me to carry my mat. So that leads into what's, what, what we're reading this morning. So, I'm just going to read again the first few verses, verse 16. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is actually the first mention in the Gospel of John of any real persecution against Jesus. Um, And I guess at this point, he's only really getting into his ministry. He's not that well known um, in Israel. He's still um, kind of developing his ministry and and becoming more well known. Um, But this is the first mention of real opposition, real persecution from the Jewish authorities. But then, look at verse 17. The Jews have said that um, he's breaking the Sabbath, they're persecuting him. Jesus says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, what happens next is very interesting. Verse 18 starts and says, this is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. So, what's happened here? Jesus has just said a few words. All he said is, my father is working until now, and I am working. 
But this, what was a persecution of Jesus, is turned into a plan to kill him in the space of a few verses. And you might think, wow, that's a bit of an overreaction. All he said is, my father's working and I'm working. Why would he conclude that I'm making myself equal with God, is what, is what they go on to say in verse 18. So what I think Jesus is saying, when he says, my father is working until now and I'm working, what I think Jesus is saying is this. He says, the father and I created the world and it was beautiful. It was perfect. And we rested on the seventh day, not because we were tired, not because we needed to. We don't need to rest. We're God. But we stepped back to just enjoy the manifestation of our glory in this perfect universe we've made. And that really is the essence of Sabbath. It's a day set aside for enjoying the glory of God in a restful way. And that was the intent behind it. The Jews didn't get it. They added all these man-made laws around what constitutes working on the Sabbath, including carrying your possessions around. They weren't allowed to do that. But that wasn't the intent. But then what happened is that sin entered the world and it got broken. And so when sin came, sickness came. So that's what we see happening in the first 15 verses of this chapter. Multitude of sick people around the pool of Bethesda. They're broken, they're they're messed up. Because the sin has entered into the world and, and sickness has entered into the world. And death came. And this world isn't the way that we, this is God speaking, made it to be. As soon as that happened though, on the very day the world fell, Jesus saying, my father and I started to repair. And we've been working every single day, every single day from then until now. And we're going to keep working until we get to the point where my kingdom is fully restored and we've got Sabbath alone in the universe. That's where this is heading. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 17. But the most important thing to see here in what's happening here is not necessarily you understand why the Jews concluded he was making himself equal with God. The most important thing I want you to see is that actually Jesus doesn't deny it. He lets it stand. He doesn't say, oh, hang on, don't impute to me a claim to be equal with God. I didn't say that. He doesn't respond in that way. He lets it stand. And actually what happens through the rest of this chapter is he goes on to expand on that and make it more clear and make it worse for himself. So what I want to do now just briefly is explain how the rest of this this passage is structured um, and, and what Jesus is really doing, what he's trying to say. So the first few verses we just looked at is, is really quite a big turning point. I've already shown you that this persecution that the Jews first had has been turned into a plan to kill him. It's a big turning point um, in Jesus' ministry, and it's setting him on the trajectory towards the cross. But that's God's plan. So it's a big turning point in Jesus' life and his ministry, but it's a big turning point for, for us, for humanity, for the whole of creation. It's God's plan. So we've got that turning point at the beginning, and then the rest of the chapter from verse 19 onwards is all Jesus speaking. Um, and actually, the way he goes about this, the way he structures it, is in um, very much the sort of accepted style if you're in a courtroom or in a legal setting, the way he structures his response. In fact, verse 17, where it says, Jesus answered them. The word that we get translated as answered is very rare in the New Testament, and it's always in the context of a courtroom or some kind of legal setting where someone is giving a, a, a formal defense against charges that have been made against them. And so what Jesus is doing here um, is giving his defense before the authorities. And so I just want to break it down into three kind of sections of what's left. So verses 19 to 30, Jesus is basically giving his own testimony. He's in the position of defense and he's laying out who he is. He's giving his own testimony, his own personal testimony. But then from verse 31, he says, you can't just rely on what I say. And this is where I talk about how he's structuring it in the framework of like a legal courtroom, a kind of defense giving it on courtroom. And there wouldn't just be the defendant giving his testimony. So what Jesus says is he then starts bringing other witnesses to corroborate what he says about himself. 
and to validate what he says about himself. And those witnesses go on until pretty much to the end of the chapter, but what he also then does is a third section from about verse 37 onwards towards the end of the chapter, um, where he, he does something quite unusual. Um, and he actually turns things around um, against the Jewish authorities, and where previously he'd been defending himself, he starts then making, laying charges against them and accusing them of things. And it's quite astonishing. He uses some of the, the witnesses towards the end, who are witnesses of, of, his, of who he is, and he turns them around and uses them to make accusations against the Jews. And it's just relentless. You would have heard of the last of ten verses or so. He's accusing them of, of not believing in him in lots and lots of different ways. So that's kind of the overall structure. So I want to start... Because there's so much here, I'm not going to be able to expand on every verse, and I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear that. So what I'm going to do for each of those three sections, I'm just going to pick out a few key points um, and just show what Jesus is doing and what he really means. So for verses 19 to 30, this is where Jesus is giving his own testimony. And verse 19 is where basically Jesus is saying he doesn't, and actually he can't, go his own way. But he stays in perfect step with the Father. So, actually what we see, there's a very similar phrase used at either end of this section. So in verse 19, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Then in verse 30, it says almost the same sort of thing. And Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. That is, as I hear the Father, I judge. So this whole section is bracketed by this sense that you know, one step that God takes, one step I take, we're in perfect sync with one another. We're essentially one. That's our identity. Uh, but the most important statement I want to focus on here is in the second half of verse 19, where he says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now this is going way beyond saying that I only do what I see the Father doing. He's not just saying, you know, I see God do something, and I try and copy it. He's not a copycat. That's not his nature. Um, <clears throat> what it's saying is that everything the Father does, I do. You know, the Father creates the world, the Son creates the world. You see the Father work, doing some kind of work, that's, I'm doing that work as well. And this is a massive statement. And so he's basically saying to the Jews, you say I'm making myself equal with God? Well, let me say it back to you. Whatever the Father does, I do. What if you said that? What if I said that to you? You know, When you see God doing something, you see me doing it. How, how would you feel about that? What would that make you think? But in essence, he's saying, I am God. My identity and the essence of my being are so intrinsically tied up with that of God the Father. We are one. That's how I'm equal with God. I'm not just a mere man trying to raise myself up to equality with God. That would be blasphemy. I am God. It's completely different. And so, he's not rejecting what they said, he's accepting what they said. And he's actually giving them far more reasons to believe it and get himself killed. This is where this is heading. The next bit I just want to pull out is then verses 22 to 23, I'll read them again. So, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. So verse 22 starts saying, the Father judges no one. So what does, that, what does that mean? Does that mean that the Father is not involved in judgment? Can it really mean that after what I've just said from verse 19? The Father and the Son are in step, they're in sync, doing everything together. It doesn't make sense. So when you read that verse, you can't read it in the absolute sense that God the Father is just not involved in judgment. 
He's given all authority to the Son. But the way I make sense of this, the way I understand this to work, is that when God's trying to determine how humanity should be judged, he decided that he's not going to put himself directly into history as the, the focal point by which people come and get judged. He puts Jesus into history. Jesus is the man that we come up against, and we need to decide which way we're going to go. We come up against Jesus, we need to reckon with him, and we either go to the right or to the left, we go to heaven or hell, we go to worship him or we go to blasphemy. So what they make of Jesus decides their destiny, but God is still involved. He's, he's still back here, he's endorsing, he's approving. God, Jesus has been given accountability to execute judgment, it says a bit later on, but God is involved. He's approving those decisions. He's speaking to Jesus. We saw in verse 30 that Jesus says, as I hear, I judge. He's not just merely doing it on his own. He's hearing from the Father. And they're working this together. But Jesus is the only way. You can't honour the Father without honouring the Son. Now, Western culture will tell people that you can believe in anything you want to believe in, that we all worship the same God. You maybe have heard a, a quote by Gandhi who says, all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter which way you come, but all roads lead to God. And that's, that's absolutely nonsense. It's not right at all. We can't honour the Father, this text is saying, without honouring the Son, without honouring Jesus. But you're going to face trouble in the world by saying so. Jesus gets killed for claiming to be equal with God. Christians throughout history, Christians today, get killed for claiming he is the only way to God. We may not face such severe opposition in this country, but it's there, it's in our culture. You try and tell someone that Jesus is the only way to God, they don't like it, but it's the truth. So next I want to pull out a couple of things from verses 25 and also 28. And this is where it's talking about how Jesus raises the dead. He raises all of them, and he does it by his mighty voice. So who's going to be raised? Verse 28 makes it very clear, everybody. Verse 28 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. So when Jesus issues the command, everybody is going to rise from the dead. Everybody. Now just let that sink in, mainly so that you can see who Jesus is. He's going to come, he's going to issue that command, and everybody is going to rise from the dead. Everybody who's ever died, their decomposed bodies are going to obey. I have a hard enough time obeying when I'm alive and I can hear. (laughs) My dead body is going to obey that command of Jesus and rise from the dead. This is incredible. Not just me, not just you. Millions of people who have gone before us, millions of Chinese, millions of Indians, Africans, Americans, Brazilians, any other nation you can think of, all these people are going to rise. Jesus is going to raise Judas Iscariot from the dead, the guy who betrayed him. Jesus is going to raise Julius Caesar from the dead. He's going to raise other people we have heard of who have died, Princess Diana, Michelangelo, Michael Jackson. All these people, real people, are going to be raised from the dead and they're going to face him. This is going to happen. There is no exception anywhere on planet Earth. He's God. He can do this. Just let it sink in who it is we're dealing with here. He claims to be God. He is going to come and he's going to raise everybody. 
And how is he going to do it? We've already mentioned this. By his mighty voice. So the second half of verse 25 and verse 28 says it's by his voice. And if you look in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all the parts of my body, all the parts of this, this stand I'm using, the rock of the earth, the stars, the, the galaxies and the universe are all upheld moment by moment by the power of Jesus' word, by his voice, saying, stay in being, stay in being, stay in being until I say otherwise. That's the power of Jesus' voice. And so what we're going to see at the resurrection when we're all raised is just it's part of that. His voice has the power to um, create whatever it commands. The beginning of time when God said, let there be light, there was light. The universe came into being. He spoke that into being. And so on the last day when he speaks to decomposed bodies all over the world, no matter how many bodies have shared the same molecules, somehow that power of that voice is going to raise us all. And next, the hour of the resurrection has come. It's already here. Let me just read verse 25 again. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, we just talked about, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, I think partly what Jesus is talking about here is that every time he does a miracle, what he's doing is he's bringing the future glory of his kingdom into the present. And he's doing a little bit of it here to show us now what it's going to be like then, in the future. So you'll hear people talk about how the kingdom is now and not yet. There's kind of this this crossover period, this age that we're in now. But instead of doing everything in its fullness, what he does is he gives samples. So we heard last week, he heals that man at Bethesda to say, this is the way it's going to be. There's going to be no more sickness in my kingdom. He delivers a man of thousands of demons called Legion and says, this is the way it's going to be. There's going to be no demons, no Satan in my kingdom. They're going to be done away with. And he raises, in the accounts we have in the Gospels, three people from the dead. A little girl, a widow's son, and Lazarus. To say, that's the way it's going to be. At the last day, everyone is coming out of the grave. And I'm going to show you I can do it now in these three examples. So just thinking about Lazarus. In John chapter 11, we can read about it. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And I think that was intentional because then, you know, he couldn't be accused of just resuscitating him. It's not like he'd just kind of arrested and he'd gone in there and, you know, heart compressions mouth to mouth and, you know, brought him back from the dead. He'd been dead four days. He was dead, dead, dead. That was it. He was gone. And so he goes, and what happens? We can read in the account that he, he, he asks for the stone to be moved away from the tomb. He stands outside and he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. It's his voice. And the dead man rises and comes out. incredible. Stand in awe of this Jesus. So we're going to be raised. All of us are going to be raised and we're going to face him. That's what happens next. And we can see what happens here in verse 28-29. So again, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So what is this verse saying where it says those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment? Is this saying that the deciding factor in our judgment is our deeds, what we do? If you do good, you go into life. If you do evil, you go into judgment. Is that what it's saying? Of course, that makes all of us Christians who love the doctrine of um, salvation by faith alone a little bit... Hmm. Hmm. What does that mean? 
They're not contradictory, and this is really important. I just want to spend a couple of moments just explaining how this works. It doesn't mean that we get saved, justified, united to Jesus by what we do. In fact, it means the reverse. If you are saved by faith, if you are connected to Jesus, you will do good works. And that's all it's really saying here. In this way, our good works become the evidence or the confirmation, the verification that that will be in our file on the last day to show that we were saved. Why do I think that? I get it from chapter 15, actually, and what Jesus says about the vine and the branch. I'll just read John 15, verse 5. It says, Whoever abides in me, this is Jesus speaking, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus said that every branch that abides in him will bear fruit. So if I don't bear fruit, if I don't do good works, the problem isn't, isn't the problem is that I'm not abiding, I'm not in Jesus, I'm not saved. Which means the solution isn't to try and bear fruit, to try and do good works and get back into Jesus. That's not how it works. The solution is to start abiding. If you can do nothing without being united to Jesus, then good works can't be the means that you get connected to him. You can't do good works unless you're saved. Does that make sense? So when you stand before the judgment and he's looking for good works, he's not looking for the kind of things that got you saved. They don't get you saved. Only saved people can do them. That's what he's saying about this illustration with the vine and the branches. So when he opens your file at the judgment, if you are saved, there will be some evidence of good works. If you weren't saved, there won't be any. And that's all verse 29 in this chapter is talking about. There's a kind of a correlation between the works in our life and whether we go to life or judgment. But both of those things are determined by whether we're saved. We can't do good works to get saved. We get saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that's the first section. How are we doing for time? Getting tight. So the next section is the witnesses to Jesus. I'm not going to spend too much time on these. I'm just going to mention a few of them. But in verse 31, Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. And all all he's saying there is that it's just because he's, he's, he's taking this whole approach of a legal courtroom setting. He's not just going to give evidence about himself. He can't just rely on that. He's going to bring some other witnesses to corroborate what he's saying. So the first one is in verse 32, um, which I'll just remind you of. This is a, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's talking about God the Father here, but he doesn't go into any more, any more detail at this point. He comes back in verses 37 and 38 to explain what that means. He then quickly moves on to someone else with whom the Jews are very familiar, which is John, John the Baptist. And so verses 33 to 35 is just saying, you know, John bore witness about me. His stated purpose was to bear witness about me. And you listened to him, you followed him for a while. That's what he came for. So that was the second witness. But then what I want to get onto is, uh, is the third witness he brings in verse 36, which are his works. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the, words, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father sent me. So, miracles authenticate the messenger. Um, What we actually see in um, the Gospel of John particularly is the the miracles that Jesus performs, he often refers to as signs. And signs don't exist for, for themselves. They're not an end in themselves. They exist to point you at something else or to give you information about something else. That's what a sign is for. So the miracles, when Jesus is doing all these incredible things, are not just for that purpose. He doesn't heal someone just to make them well. 
He doesn't um, feed thousands just so they're fed. He's here to show who he is. These works corroborate his identity, that he's been sent by the Father. Um, Now, signs, as I said, they point to something else to give you information about something else, Um, but only if they're a good sign. You you can get bad signs. Um, An example of this was a few weeks ago. I was driving to work. It was still before the clocks had changed. It was dark in the morning, and it was really, really foggy. And I was driving along the motorway, and you know you get those gantries along the top with the signs that give you bits of information. I was driving along. I could see in the distance, kind of through the fog, that the the flashing lights were on. I thought, oh, there's a a problem. I couldn't read what the sign says because of the fog. So everyone was going quite slowly, crawling up to these signs. I was trying to peer through and see what they said. I got there, so I got close enough to see what it said. What did it say? Fog. (laughs) What's the point of that? That was a useless sign. So that's that's a bad example of a sign. A good example of a sign I can give you is um, a number of years back, first time I travelled to the US with work, um, we were in, the, in the, this town called Peoria. It's basically Caterpillar Central. We've got loads of sites there. Um, and one evening, I was supposed to be going out to meet a couple of other colleagues for, for a meal at a steakhouse called Alexander's, which has since become my favourite restaurant in the world. Um, but they, they told me roughly where it was, and I was trying to get there. And it was actually set back from the road a little bit. It was hard to see. And it was actually an old industrial building they converted. So it was just... From what you could see from the road, it was just brick. Um, but there was, thankfully, a sign. Alexander Steakhouse pointing that way. And it helped me find my way to the steakhouse. That was a good sign. That pointed me to something. That told me where I was going. It was pointing me towards just amazing glory. <laughs> but this, this steakhouse is amazing. I love it. In fact, the last time I was there, I, I plucked up the courage to take the, on their eating challenge, their beef eater challenge, um, which I'd wanted to do before, but I never really plucked up the courage. But it was a three-pound steak. 48 ounces of steak, um, and I managed to do it in 58 minutes. So I got a T-shirt, I got my photo on the wall, and <laughs> it was a glorious day. But that was, that's, that's a sign that works well. That was a good sign. It was pointing at something else, pointing where I needed to be. And that's what Jesus' works do. They point to the fact that he is the Messiah. He's the one sent by God. Now we, we come to what is the real meat um, <clears throat> of the rest of this text, verses 37 to 47. And this is where Jesus turns the tables on his accusers and he uses the final witnesses in his defence, but also to start laying charges against them. Which is, is quite interesting. What's he actually up to here? You think he's just throwing out words and accusations because he doesn't like these people? Is that what he's doing? That's not the case. These are his kinsmen. He loves these people. He longs for them. In fact, it says in uh, Matthew 23, it's, he, he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself like a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't come to me. He desperately wants these people to come to him. So what is he up to? What he's up to is exposing the fact that they have unbelief in their hearts. They don't believe him. They don't believe who he is. What he's also up to is trying to expose what the root of that unbelief is. So they would understand why it is they're not believing in Jesus. But also, he's not just up to that. What he's up to is exposing the root of unbelief in us. So that everyone in this room will know why either you don't believe in Jesus or why you have a hard time believing some of the things he says. So, this is not a Jewish problem. There isn't a whiff in this text that the reason they're not believing has got anything to do with the fact they're Jewish. There's no ethnic kind of aspect to this. It's simply a human problem and it applies to us today. So let's just go into this final section and we're starting from verse 37. And he actually, he brings another witness here and I'm going to go to verse 39 actually. So verse 39 says, you search the scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So what he's saying is you're right to seek eternal life in the Scriptures, but you're wrong to find it anywhere in there except in me. What he's saying is that all the Scriptures bear witness to me. No, no qualification, not like just some of them. He's not saying um, that there's just maybe a few prophecies and fulfillments. He's not just saying that, for example, in Micah it says that I'll be born in Bethlehem, and hey, I was born in Bethlehem. He's not just saying simply that. What does it mean when it says the Scriptures witness to Jesus? What it means is that God, who breathed out all of the Scriptures, he saw Jesus, he saw him from eternity, he saw everything that was going to happen, he saw, um, <clears throat> played out in his mind the entire history of redemption, and then he inspired people to write it down. So the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible, is a revelation of Jesus. It's simply inadequate to think just there's a few places, a few prophecies and revelations. It's not that simple. There's much more to it. Um, so I just want to show you a few other examples. Actually, we see later on in John. In John chapter 6, Jesus reminds the Jewish people that the fathers, their fathers had eaten manna in the wilderness. And then what he does, he applies it to himself. And he says this. He says, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the manna is about Jesus. It's a picture of him. Then later on in John chapter 6, we've got Jesus teaching that nobody comes to him unless the Father draws him. But then he explains that by, by saying this means that each person who comes to me has been personally taught by the Father to come. And then what he does is he goes and quotes Isaiah, where effectively the same thing is said. It's written in the prophets, it's Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So Isaiah is basically pointing to how people get saved by Jesus. And then one of the more pervasive examples I want to use is actually in John chapter 12, where John is quoting from Isaiah 6. And as many of you may know, the most well-known part of Isaiah 6 is where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then John, in, chapter, in verse 41 of chapter 12 of John, says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Now back in Isaiah, the word that's, that's used is the Lord, and in your Bibles you'll see it's in, in capital letters. What that means is it's, it's Yahweh, it's the name of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And that's who Isaiah was seeing. But what John says is that Isaiah said this about him because he was seeing Jesus. So what I conclude from that is that when we see God manifest in the Old Testament and we see him revealed, we're seeing Jesus manifest. Everywhere. Not just in this one place. And this shouldn't be a surprise because what we talked about earlier in the the message was that God the Father, God the Son, their identity is so woven up with one another. Yes, they're separate persons, but somehow they are one person. When we see God the Father revealed in the Old Testament, we see Jesus revealed. Now here's the key. What he's saying to the Jews that that he's speaking with is that if you meet God, if you know God, if you admire him, trust him, if you're shaped by God how he's revealed in the Old Testament then you will recognize Jesus when he shows up. And if you don't recognize me, if you don't believe in me, you never knew God. This is what he's saying to the Jews. 
They don't recognize him as the Messiah. They're rejecting him. And so what he's saying to them is, you don't know God. And this is what got him killed. Saying to the most religious people on the planet, people who basically got the whole Old Testament memorized, that you don't know God is highly inflammatory. They're not going to like it. But that's what he said. I'm going to miss the next one out because of a short time. I'm going to go to the, the last point I want to make. <clears throat> so in verse 40, 44 is where I'm going next. So it says, How can you believe when you receive glory for one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Human beings love to be honoured. We love to be praised. Jesus understood this. And so when this verse starts, it sounds like a question. How can you believe? It's not really a question. It's just saying you can't believe because you're in love with the praise of man. He's making that connection here, and it's a very interesting one. You love the glory of man, not the glory of God. You, just, you, you love it. You love to be praised. It feels so good to be applauded, to be patted on the back. You love it. And I was born this way. You were born this way. And I've been like that ever since until God broke into my life, as I explained at the beginning, and he put that old man to death. But the trouble is that that root nature in me, that desire for applause, that desire for praise still there. Yes, I've been born again. Yes, I'm a new person. But I need to keep putting that old nature to death every day. The only reason I can persevere in doing that is because God graciously comes, breaks into my life and gives me the strength through the Holy Spirit to do it. But we still, we still love the praise of man. This has happened to me recently, just preparing for this sermon, hoping you're going to like it, hoping you're going to like me because of my sermon. And that's wrong. You know, I, I, I hope you like it because you, so you'll be saved. It's got nothing to do with me. So this is a really key barometer for your faith. How desperately do you crave people liking you? It's okay to want to be liked. You know, people don't want to be disliked. What I'm talking about is a controlling desire in your life that's got a grip on you. And you're constantly worrying about whether people like you or not. This is what I'm getting at here. This is what he's going after these Jews for, but it also applies to us today. But it never satisfies. When you've tasted the beauty of God and the approval of God in Christ then trying to seek approval from other people just vanishes. It loses its appeal. So I'm going to try and summarise, and then I've got a few points which I want to apply. We're nearly there. So the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he had violated their man-made Sabbath laws. And he tells them, my father's working till now and I am working. And so they conclude from that that he, a mere man as far as they're concerned, is elevating himself to be equal with God. And so they want to kill him. So Jesus is effectively not in a courtroom, but he's effectively on trial and and he responds to them and says, you're right to conclude I'm claiming to be equal with God, but you're wrong to think I make that claim just simply as a man. I am God. I'm not just some copycat. My identity is bound up with that of the Father. You're going to die someday. You're going to be raised by the power of my voice and you will stand before me as I judge you. If you won't honour me, you can't honour the Father. If you don't recognise who I am, you don't know God. And you're going to be headed for eternal judgment. But they don't want a Messiah like that. They don't want a Messiah like Jesus. They want a king who is just like them, full of pride. Because a humble king is too much of a threat on their ego. They've always got to be orienting on him instead of themselves. So then Jesus would say, the Father and I are about paradise making. We've been working until now. And I'm going to finish it when I come the second time. I will take away all sickness. There will be no tears on the cheeks of those who believe in me. Sin and death are going to be done away with. They'll be gone. 
I've got a few months left on this earth and I intend to keep doing the kind of works that point to who I am, that reveal the Father, that reveal that he has sent me. The kind of works that are pointing to my kingdom, the kind of world I'm going to make someday. And I want you to be there with me, but you won't believe me. Despite all the witnesses to me. And you can't believe because you're in love with the praise of man. And you just don't give a monkey's about the glory that comes from God. So now this is me talking to you. We've got to, we've got to reckon with this Jesus. The whole Bible is a revelation of him. You can be of any faith. You can even call yourself a Christian and not know God. You can go to all the services. You can learn all the doctrines. You can spend time in small groups. The only way you get to God is by knowing, honouring and loving Jesus. For who he really is, he's God. So whoever you are, love the whole Bible. Don't ignore the Old Testament. Don't throw it away. Don't rip it out of your Bibles. Spend time in it. When God is being revealed, Jesus our Saviour is being revealed. And he wants us with him in his kingdom. So if, uh, if you're able, if you could just stand with me. Can the, the band come back up and uh, maybe just start playing in the background? There's a few things I want to give you to try and apply what we've talked about this morning. First key point is you are going to die someday. It's a sobering thought, but you're going to die. And you're going to be raised and you're going to face Jesus. So don't wait until then to reckon with him. It's going to be too late. You need to reckon with him now. You've got to make your mind up about what you think about this Jesus. So one way you could respond is simply become a Christian. Put your faith in him if you don't already. Maybe you're not ready to say yes. Maybe you've got some questions. That's fine. You know, we can answer those questions. So if you're in that situation, maybe talk to someone you came with, come and speak to me afterwards or Stuart, and we can, we can try and help you. But you've got to reckon with this Jesus. If you are a believer, you need to submit your whole life to him. Make sure every single aspect of your life is lined up with his will and believe in him fully. And secondly, some of you, I think, and it's, it's just God has put it on my heart even more as I've been preaching, that some of you worry so much about what people think of you. And it has a control on your life. You, you spend so much time worrying, fretting about what people think about you. You need to give up that love affair, this addiction to the praise of men. But the, you know, the truth is, you've, what you've, what's happened is you've fallen for the devil's lies, where he says you are nothing unless you do good works that get you praise, that get you attention, that get you approval from people. That's the lie of the devil. The truth is, you already have significant security, full acceptance in God through Jesus Christ. And you simply need to be set free from this controlling desire for human approval, and you can be in Jesus Thirdly, don't throw away or ignore the Old Testament. If you've done that, if you find it too tough and you just don't get into there, repent of it. And make some kind of plan to get into the Scriptures and see Jesus in them. It'll be so good for your heart. And lastly, I didn't really expand on it in the, in the sermon, but we've got to be very careful we don't point the finger at other people. It's very easy reading this chapter to think, oh, those stupid Jews, why aren't they believing? But we shouldn't point the finger at other people. The only place we should point the finger is in the mirror at ourselves and see if we line up to what the Bible is saying. But the trouble is, you are not the best person to honestly assess yourself. We're blind to our blindness. We can't see our own faults very well. We need other people. And so this is why small groups are so important. In this church, we have life groups. If you're not in a life group, I'd encourage you, get connected to one. 
because otherwise there's no accountability for following through on good intentions. If someone knows what you're going to do, then you're far more likely to do it. And that kind of relationship that you get in a small group is so vital in that. And there's so many other benefits to being a small group. So I just encourage you, if you're not in one, get connected to one. And you can talk to maybe Stuart about that afterwards. So you're going to die someday and you're going to be raised. Maybe that means you need to become a Christian today. Maybe that means you've got questions you want to ask. Maybe that means you're a Christian already, but you've just got a few bits and pieces you need to work through with God. And then some of you are just, you worry so much about what people think about you and it has a control over your life. I just want to give some space now for any of you in those categories to just respond and do some work with God. If you want to, if you feel comfortable doing so, then please come forward and I can pray with you. Maybe Stuart can pray with you or somebody else. Uh, You don't have to come forward if you just want to respond where you are and speak directly to God, that's fine. Or just maybe ask someone to pray with you. But I'm just going to leave a little bit of space now. And if you want to come, then come. You know, stepping out physically can often be a very powerful demonstration to the devil. He, believe, believe it or not, he does not know exactly what's going on in your heart or in your mind. He can't see that. He's not that powerful. When we physically step out and respond to God in faith, it's like kicking the devil in the head. And it's a very powerful step we can take. So if anybody wants to come, if you want me to pray with you, I'd, I'd love to. And we're just going to have a little time where you can do some business with God and then we're going to go into worship.